Why don't you uh, get your Bibles out, get them ready, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll get things rolling here. Chapter 12. There was a woman who was frantic uh, and sort of freaked out, of course, because she was there trying to board one of those life-saving you know, boats off the Titanic. And she had just made her way into the boat when she remembered something that she needed to get. And the guy's like, man, if you leave, there's no promise you're gonna get back in here. Um, she said, oh, but we need this. And so she ran, she ran in through the, you know, the, the deck of the ship was already slanted. There was already uh, you know, frantic people running around, kind of crazy. But she made her way to her stateroom and there she uh, got into her you know, personals uh, and, and she went, pushed aside all of her jewelry and her pearls and all that stuff. And she reached in and grabbed three objects and put them in her pocket and ran back out. And, and she jumped into the lifeboat just as they were lowering it into the freezing Atlantic Ocean. And they said, what did you go back to get? And she actually pulled out three oranges because she knew that they would need to try to sustain life with oranges. She left her diamonds and her pearls and suddenly oranges became more important than her jewelry. Isn't it funny how when you face death, your priorities change? Uh, the things that you value in life won't necessarily be the, th the same things you value in death. Life and death are very real and the statistics on death are alarming. 10 out of every 10 people die. Shocking, but true nonetheless. And so, you know, when we have to face death, which we all will, what, what's important? Well, one of the most important questions I think a person can ask is what's gonna happen when you die? The Bible teaches that really one of two main things are gonna happen. Either a person's gonna go to heaven or they're gonna go to hell. And, and all those things are eternal in nature. You die and you either go north or south. Where are you gonna go? Do you know where you're gonna go? Well, Jesus is gonna talk about something here in our story as we're in Matthew chapter 12 that's gonna touch on a very troubling issue. And maybe you've been troubled by this issue. And I wanna try to you know, let this story speak to us and bring clarity to the issue that is at hand. And that is the simple question, what is the unpardonable sin? And as it turns out, Jesus tells us what it is. But even after Jesus tells us what it is, it's, there's still a lot of questions people have. And the unpardonable sin is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Some people say blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, so what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And have you committed it? That's one of the things I've been asked many times as a pastor over the many years. People come, I'm afraid I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now it's so complicated that I, when I hear that, I say, just the fact that you're coming and asking me about it means you haven't. And that only makes them more confused, huh? How do you know? You don't even know what sin I've committed. Well, you've probably committed a lot of sins, but you're, you haven't committed that one. And uh, you say, well, Brett, how can you say that with such assuredness? Well, as it turns out, that's where you have to use the context in which Jesus brings this topic up. The story that's related to it tells us a little bit about what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is really all about. So that's where we're gonna read this little story, a miracle that Jesus does, and then the response from various people, and then Jesus dives into this topic. Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 is where we begin. It says in Matthew 12, 22, it says, then was brought unto him, Jesus, one possessed with a devil. Um, and it says he was blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw. Now, this kind of cracks me up a little bit just because all the other miracles we've been reading about, there's more detail. 
you know, the man with the withered hand, Capernaum. There's like, we learn a little bit more about the situation. This is just a one verse guy was demon possessed, blind and couldn't speak. And Jesus healed him and he was seeing and speaking. The end. Now you say, well, Brett, why is that there? Because especially when, when you, uh, you kind of get the sense that, that Matthew's sort of done explaining all the miracles. Um, when, he, when he says there in verse 15, Jesus knew it. He withdrew himself from thence and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Can you imagine how many stories we don't know about Jesus healing people? Because he healed them all. Everybody that was sick and hurting, going through life troubles, Jesus healed them all. So why tack on this one story of a demon-possessed blind guy that couldn't speak? I think it has to do with the response of the crowd. By this time, they'd seen one so many healings that they said, we're thinking differently about who Jesus really is. Two responses. The first response is seen in verse 23. It says, and all the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David? Okay, quiz time, question, because we gotta kind of fast forward to some of this. By them saying, is this not the son of David? What are they saying, really, anybody? Yes, some of you guys, I heard the word Messiah. They're actually acknowledging by saying, this, could this be the son of David? Is not this the son of David? They're questioning, could this be the, the Messiah of the Jews that was foretold in the Old Testament prophecies? And they're saying that because, man, the blind are seeing, the deaf are being, you know, receiving hearing, the, the dumb are speaking, and the demon-possessed are freed. And they're saying, this is just too much. Could this be the son of David? Son of David would be the idiom uh, that would mean David was the king. And there was a Davidic covenant where God promised that there would be a king that would have an everlasting kingdom that would come from the line of David. And that's why, you know, the genealogy in Matthew and also Luke are so important because it lines Jesus up as truly a descendant of David. But is that what they're saying? Well, uh, this is Jesus. He must be related to David. That's not exactly what they're saying. It's true. But what they were saying is, is this Jesus, the Messiah that we've been waiting for? So the crowd is getting it right. They're getting closer to understanding who Jesus really is. But what did the religious people think? Well, that's verse 24. Check it out. There it says, but when the Pharisees heard it, that's the religious leaders, they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Whoa, Nelly. Say what? Jesus is casting out the demons out of this guy, out of Beelzebub? Who's Beelzebub? Is he some movie character? Uh, we'll call him Bubba for short. Who is this guy? Beelzebub. Well, as it turns out, Beelzebub is an interesting word. The entomology of Beelzebub, the, as you do a word study, is kind of funny because in the Bible, you'll see it as Beelzebub, Beelzebul, or Baalzebub. Which one is it? Beal or Beal or Baal or Beelzebul? Which one? Well, uh, there's actually this weird entomology that is kind of funny. Um, I'll tell you what this, this, this B-E-E-L-Zebub is at the last. The first one you come across in the Bible is Baal-Zebub, which is B-A-A-L. What's the difference? Well, the Philistines in a town called Ekron, I've been to Ekron, it's just a tiny little ruin out in the southern part near the Gaza Strip in uh, Israel. And there's not much remaining of Ekron. But, um, but you can go see some of the ancient Ekron stones, but they actually had a temple for Baal-Zebub, which was linked to the god Baal, uh, B-A-A-L. We say Baal here, they say Baal in different parts of the world. But he was, um, he was known to be sort of a deity or um, linked to Satan, but he wasn't Satan. 
So the Philistines worshiped Baalzebub, and that name means, and maybe you, if you had an English class in college, you, you remember this as Lord of the Flies. If you read some of Dante or some of these other kinds of things, this is where this Baalzebub came from, Lord of the Flies. Well, the Jews, they uh, did sort of a twist on the word Baalzebub, and they called him Baalzebul. Uh, tomato, tomato, Baalzebul or Baalzebub, which one is it? Well, it's kind of funny. This is where I, I, I think language is funny. Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. The Jews would start calling it Beelzebul, which means, um, in some circles, it means Lord of the Dung. Why would they do that? Well, there's a kind of a story, and it's a long one, but I'll tell you the short version. In Jerusalem, there's a, a gate in the very lowest part of the city that goes out toward the, um, the southern area called the Dung Gate. And at the Dung Gate, you go out of that gate, and guess where you end up? If you walk out of the Dung Gate and walk a little ways, where do you end up? A place called Gehenna, which is another word for what? Hell, or yeah, it is a dump, you're right. It is a dump, but it's called hell. Gehenna is the word hell, uh, if you translate them. Why would they call that place hell in Israel? Well, I always love it when we drive our tour bus through that area, we're going around and swinging around the southern steps, and you just keep driving, and then I say, hey, you guys, um, welcome to hell. And they're like, Pastor Brett, you shouldn't say that. No, literally, look at the sign. And it says, hell, uh, you know, Gehenna. Uh, the Valley of Gehenna is right there. And uh, there's a little park there and some swings. But the reason it was called hell, <laughs> it's where, remember when the Jews started sacrificing babies to Moloch, the god of Moloch? That's where they did it, in the Valley of Hell. And the, they called it hell because of the shrieks and the screams. Like, it's a horrible story. But it's that for that reason, the Jews would bring all their camel dung and donkey dung out the dung gate, and then they called it Beelzebul, where the flies gathered, because Lord of the Flies was the Ekron Philistine, the enemy of Israel, God, and they called him Beelzebul, the Lord of the Dung. It was sort of a, um, a, a what they call a caconym, which is kind of like a play on words to be insulting. That's, that's what they did. So Beelzebub is kind of an insulting version of Baalzebub, but after a couple millennia, it went from Baalzebub to Beelzebub, which we see in our text. And Beelzebub is the Greek version of that. But by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the, the word Beelzebub means Satan. Like it's transferred not just from an agent of Satan, like the Philistines sort of believed, but it was more of Satan himself. So Beelzebub becomes sort of a name of Satan. And that's what these Pharisees are accusing Jesus of. You're casting out demons by the power of Satan. And that was what they said. So the people are saying, could this be the Messiah? And the religious are saying, you're from Satan. What a dichotomy. What a, somebody's wrong in this story. Uh, who's wrong? Who's right? Well, I think it's obvious. But isn't it something? Jesus is gonna give an argument. And Jesus, when he gives sort of an argument against his accusers in the New Testament, almost always Jesus, his intellect and his ability to nail people down, it's dizzying and it's pretty fun to watch. In this case, however, Jesus uses a very clear and logical argument. It's not even, you don't even have to be that fancy to understand Jesus's argument of why them accusing him of casting out demons uh, is so ridiculous. And Jesus, I love it. He just uses a very logical, uh, clear argument. Let's take a look and see how Jesus defends himself on this one. Uh, he goes on and starts speaking there in verse 25. And it says there, and Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, 
By whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Jesus makes a very logical and very clear argument uh, about why he's, he's saying, why in the world would Satan cast out Satan? Why would Satan sort of go against his own house? A house divided cannot stand. And, and so it's a very logical uh, argument. And by the way, he asked this question, if, if you think about, you know, by the Beelzebub, I cast out demons, by what power are you casting out demons? And the answer is kind of funny because the, most theologians believe Jesus is saying, by whom are you casting out demons? The, the funny part of it is they're not casting out demons. Uh, they'd have to say, oh, we don't know how to do that. Uh, but Jesus is saying, well, I do. And you, you think I'm Satan, casting out Satan? He's saying, that's not logical, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, by the way, some historians and theologians say the Jews did cast out demons. And if they did, they believe it would have been by the power of Jehovah, the God of the Jews, which if Jesus wasn't sort of reminding them that they didn't know how to cast out demons, then he would at least be saying, I'm casting out demons by the same power you should have or would have been casting out demons by the God of all gods, Jehovah, the God of the Jews, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in 28 through 30, um, there's some kind of interesting lines drawn here that I think are important. Um, he says in verse uh, 28, if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you or uh, is unto you. Which the answer, this is like a rhetorical, this is what's happening. Jesus is saying, in essence, I cast out these demons, not by Beelzebub, but by the power of the spirit of God. And that's an important thing. You might wanna mark that because this is where this discussion, when we talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this is part of the link to the actual context of the story. Jesus is saying, by the way, if I'm casting out demons by the spirit of God, which I am, then that means the kingdom of God is among you, which means the Jews are saying, is this the Messiah, the son of David? And the answer is yes. Then the kingdom is among them. Why? Because the king is standing right in front of them, Jesus. The kingdom's among them because Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is making an argument saying, I cast out devils by the spirit of God. Thus, you should be aware that you're standing with the king of kings right here among you. What a powerful thing that is. So Jesus is drawing lines and, and, and basically saying, you're either for me or against me, is kind of what he's saying. Now, I gotta add something because um, a bunch of our uh, Pentecostal friends and some of our charismaniac friends take uh, verse 29 to sort of weird lengths when it says uh, in verse 29, or how else can one enter into strong man's house and spoil his good except he first bind the strong man? And everybody kind of goes, oh, you gotta, he's saying, first you'd have to bind Satan before you try to take the demons out. So Jesus is saying, who wouldn't do that first? So people have taken this and said, oh, we need to bind Satan. And so here's how that looks. I've been there, I've been, been to these churches. When I was a kid, we'd travel around from church to church as we moved. My dad would work at different construction sites and we'd go to different churches. Sometimes it was the Baptist church, a little chilly. Sometimes the assembly of God, whew. And you get the spirit right there, but you'd hear phrases like, we bind you, Satan. And you had to say it kind of like that or it didn't count. 
Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen the guys on TV? We bind you, devil. And, and it's like, you know, they start acting very theatrical. Is that the way you deal with the devil? Uh, I just want to put this down a little bit because I think we've bought into, you know, spinning heads and green vomit when we're talking about Satan and demons. And we like to heebie-jeebie it all up and make it weird. And so even on TV, there's, we bind the devil. We, 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 you know, we rebuke you, devil. And all this stuff. And you're like, is that what we're supposed to do? Well, no. Uh, I'll tell you why not. Because the Bible doesn't tell us that's how we're supposed to do it. Now, does the strong man, Satan, need to be bound? Yes. But who really does the binding? Is it you? Do you bind? So when a person says, I bind you, devil, you do not bind the devil. Uh, you would not do well in that little endeavor. <laughs> Nor should you even try. Um, but as it turns out, we do know who actually binds Satan. There's a little bit of a progression there. The Bible does say in James 4, 7, you and I are to resist the devil and he will flee from you. So the devil is real. By the way, Jesus is agreeing that Satan exists. By the way, the same people that say hell doesn't exist, they're the same people that say that Satan doesn't exist. Um, what a dastardly teaching that is. If, if I was Satan, I'd want people not to believe in me and think I'm some just aura of evil out there. There's Christian universities that teach Satan doesn't exist. He's just the essence of evil in the world. And that's just ridiculous. Jesus said, no, there is Satan. And if I cast out demons by Satan, like Jesus acknowledges Satan's existence. And then he talks about binding Satan, the strong man. So, and then the Bible teaches you and me that we're to resist the devil. How do we resist the devil? Well, the Bible gives us further evidence. Uh, I love 1 John 4, 4 that reminds you and me, greater is he that is in you as Christians than he that is in the world, that's Satan. So you have someone greater than Satan in you. As it turns out, you're not the one who's doing all the fighting. Uh, that's why the Bible says the Lord will fight for you. The Lord is mighty in battle. Uh, God is our refuge and strength and, and he's our help in times of trouble. We need to remember that God is the one. But not only that, um, in Jude, there's an interesting little verse. In Jude, there's no chapters in Jude, but verse nine of Jude, is, there's this funny little thing there. It says, yet Michael the archangel, the word archangel means kind of like he's the military angel. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending or fighting with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. He durst not, which is the King James way of saying, he did not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Now, this is interesting to me because now you say, what's this thing about Moses' body and being disputed over it? That's a whole other teaching. We don't have time to get into all that. It's an amazing story. But more importantly, in this context, we're talking about Michael the archangel. Is Michael as tough as Satan? Anybody? We do know the answer to that because the Bible. We know that he is tougher than Satan because we're gonna find out that Michael's the one who's actually gonna subdue Satan once, once and for all. The Bible tells us that. And Michael and Satan are opposites. They're both angels, one is fallen, one is still an angel. Um, people say the devil and God are opposites. Eh, nope, God is way huger than the, the, the devil. The devil's a created being. Uh, he was called a worship leader in heaven. Uh, he was a beautiful creation of God, but he was lifted up with pride. So these angels had a free will apparently. And Satan was lifted up with pride, said, I will be like the most high God. I will you know, exalt myself. And he did. And he was lifted up with pride and cast out of heaven. So there's gonna be a day where Satan, well, why doesn't God get rid of Satan right now? Uh, that's a whole nother teaching. There is a reason, and it has to do with you and I choosing and whether we're gonna choose good or evil. And there's coming a day where 
Michael's gonna chain up Satan. Now, in this verse, it just, it, it, you don't hear Michael say, well, when Michael was contending with the devil, he said, I bind you, Satan. He didn't do that. He didn't rebuke the devil. Uh, he didn't bring railing accusations against the devil, but he just said, and I would add maybe with a calmness, the Lord rebuked thee. Why? Because the Lord is the most powerful of all and makes Satan look like a pipsqueak. We need to understand the supernatural is supernaturally natural. Like we, we love the heebie-jeebies and we get, love getting into all the weird stuff. And I do believe demonic entities do evil demonic things in the world, of course. But I think sometimes we as Christians, we like to give the Hollywood version when really, man, the Lord is the one who fights for us. So that's what Michael says. He says, the Lord rebuke thee. That, that's kind of important to remember. Now, in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, it tells us what's gonna happen to Satan. It says there was war in heaven. This is at the end of the tribulation in the book of Revelation. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon fought and his angels, the fallen angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Who did this? Michael, Michael the archangel. So if Michael is the one who's gonna ultimately subdue Satan and he doesn't bring a railing accusation against him, but just says, the Lord rebuke thee, devil, then who are we to stand around like little pipsqueaks saying, I rebuke you, devil? Because that's just not even what Michael would do. Um, I think it's a mistake when we try to dramatize some of these things. We don't need to put on a show. We don't need to quake and shake. Uh, let the Lord do the work. And yes, the strong man does need to be bound by the power of God through prayer and by trusting in the Lord. And then we don't have to gyrate or be weird about it. Enough on that. Well, back to our text here in Matthew. Um, we, we see um, this, this interesting discussion now. Jesus is saying some, some stuff about the, the devil and binding Satan, but then he shifts gears. And we see that in verse 31. He says, wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Does anybody get nervous by that? There's something Jesus just said that should have perked us up and said, okay, wait a minute, what? Jesus just said, um, there's a sin that you can commit that will not be forgiven in this world or in the world to come? That's a little scary. Because if you're not forgiven, that means you're going to hell. Apart from the forgiveness of God, we're all doomed to hell. So forgiveness is kind of a big deal. You need to have your sins forgiven, all of them, or else you're destined for hell. That's the plight of humanity. Now that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. But as it turns out, there's one sin that's unpardonable, and that's the one that's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, now, what's, before we get into like the definitions of this, um, it's interesting. Jesus makes some kind of amazing claims. He says, all manner of sin is forgiven. I love that. Because you know what? In this room, we've got some massive mondo sinners. Some of you have committed some really bad sins. You guys like, you're looking nervous. <laughs> some of you. Well, you shouldn't be surprised by that. We're all sinners, right? We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one person. Man, we're doomed apart from Christ. We're doomed from our sins. Well, Brett, speak for yourself. No, even if you've told a little white lie, that's a sin worthy of death. The Bible teaches that. Well, 
It's interesting because Jesus says, wherefore, verse three, all manner of sin and blasphemy, even blasphemy, so blasphemy is not the unpardonable sin. He says, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven to men. In fact, he even says in verse 32, if you speak a word against the son of man, that'll even be forgiven. So let's talk about the word blasphemy. Some of you think it means to cuss and swear because that's what grandma told you. And there's a certain truth to that in some ways, uh, but it's not really the essence of what blasphemy is. The word blasphemy simply means to speak against or to speak contrary towards something. So here's this funny thing. Jesus says, even if you speak against, blasphemy is the word there, speak against. Even the son of man, speaking of himself, you can speak against Jesus and that's not the unpardonable sin. Correct. Isn't that amazing? You could, you could somewhere in your life say something evil against Jesus and speak against him and you still will be forgiven for that. That's what Jesus said. All manner of blasphemy, you're forgiven except for one. The one unpardonable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now this is where it gets a little confusing. Why would you be able to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and go to hell and not go to heaven when you, you could blaspheme Jesus and be forgiven for that? It has to do with what the Holy Spirit is all about. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Now, if you're new to the Bible, there's the, the Bible teaches that God is, God is a one God, one single God, but in three persons. You say, well, Brett, one plus one plus one can equal one. Good, good math. Kindergarten paid off. But did you know one times one times one equals one? See, that's the point. Jesus is the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three in one. And it's a mystery, I'll admit. It's one that's hard to figure out. But as it turns out, each one of those parts, as we know God, we're seeing God in various, uh, the essence of God. And as it turns out, the son, Jesus, came with a real clear purpose. He came to die on the cross. Here's Jesus. God becomes a man, lives among us, perfect, sinless life, and dies on the cross for the sins of the world. He came to seek and save the lost. That's us. And Jesus fulfills a very important role in the part of the Trinity. And without that, we would all be doomed to hell. So what role does the Holy Spirit play? Well, this is a good question. And this is what's gonna help us understand what blaspheming against the Holy Spirit and why it's such a big deal. It's answered when you sort of do a deep dive. What does the Holy Spirit do? What's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? And here's where it gets kind of a bummer. For many of you, your exposure to the Holy Spirit is, well, that's those churches that believe in speaking in tongues and roll around in the aisles and gyrate and flop around on the floor and jump up and down and stuff. Um, listen, that, that can be the Holy Spirit. It also can be people being goofy. Um, I only believe in the Holy Spirit things that the Bible talks about. I actually go with that. And if you're interested, we talk about speaking in tongues and stuff like that, stuff that the Bible, I believe, does teach for today. I'm not a cessationist. Say, oh, the Holy Spirit doesn't manifest. There's some people that say that. Not true, read your Bibles. But, but at the same time, I think the speaking in tongues and the miracles, everybody kind of associates the Holy Spirit with those things. Question, of all the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, you Bible students, which, which one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit is the least, and least important one? Anybody? Speaking in tongues. You don't believe me? Read 1 Corinthians 14. Paul said, tongues, that's the least of the gifts. That's the least of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. It is one of them, but everybody gives the press to that one. Why? Because it's a little weird, but it's still important. And if you want, I've done whole teaching on speaking in tongues. You can look it up on our teachings through the Bible online. All the teachings are there. 
but I'm not gonna do, go into that. What is the main role of the Holy Spirit? Well, as it turns out, Jesus gave a very exhaustive description of what the Holy Spirit is come, it, you know, has come to, to operate in a very important way. Um, in fact, why don't you keep your finger here in Matthew, flip over to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, where we're gonna see um, what does the Holy Spirit do, do? Number one, the Holy Spirit is there to comfort. John 14, look at verses 16 through 18. John 14, 16 through 18, it says this. Uh, by the way, what's, what's the setup for this? Jesus just tells the disciples in the earlier chapter, I'm leaving you guys. What? We just gave our lives for you, man. We hung up our fishing nets. We've been following you for three years. And Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You know, believe in God as you believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Like Jesus is now telling him, I'm leaving you, but it's gonna be good. It's all good. And then he says, an expedient that I'm leaving you because I'm gonna leave for you. And then he starts telling them about the Holy Spirit. And this is where we pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 14. He says, verse 16, and I pray the Father, will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, capital C, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now right here, Jesus is telling us something really important. There's three relationships we have with the Holy Spirit um, that you should know about. We talked about this at Ironworks two weeks ago for you guys that were at Ironworks and how important it is to have the Spirit upon us. The first preposition that's important is the Holy Spirit is with you, then he's in you, and then he's upon you. Um, what's the difference between those? Well, um, before you were even saved, the Holy Spirit was with you, tapping you on the shoulder saying, you need to accept Christ, you're a sinner. And the Holy Spirit was tapping you. You remember that. Some of you guys, before you were Christians, you're like, yeah, I should probably accept Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, you think? And trying to tap you on the shoulder. You're like, yeah, I'm probably a sinner. Mm-hmm. And you need to be forgiven. Mm, yep, the Holy Spirit confirming. Yes. But some of you were resistant to that. And some of you, it took a little longer and you sort of resisted the Holy Spirit. Now, this is getting to the crux of the matter. Because the world, some of the world does not accept or receive or believe or hear the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said. He said, the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you, the people who are gonna be believers, um, you know him for he dwells with you and he shall be in you. So when does the Holy Spirit come in a person? That's easy. When, when you finally get to that place of repentance and you realize I'm a sinner and I need Jesus and you accept Christ and believe in the cross because that's what the Holy Spirit's been nudging you your whole life saying you need to be forgiven of your sins. The Holy Spirit is with you. Just one to strive with you to show you Jesus. And when you finally do that and accept Jesus, then he will be in you. When did the disciples get the in part of the Holy Spirit? John chapter 20 where they're up assembled for fear of the Jews, shaken in their sandals, afraid. And then Jesus pops in and says, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And he breathes on them and they then have the Holy Spirit in them. The third relationship, Jesus then told the disciples after the Holy Spirit was in them, remember what he told them? Go into Jerusalem and wait for what? Anybody? Yes, the Holy Spirit. That's right. How old are you? Seven? You guys should all be ashamed of yourselves. <laughs> Only one guy, seven years old, who has the Holy Spirit. Um, that's right, a little Bible scholar over here. And, 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 and of all the relationships, the, the with is before you're saved, the in is once you are saved. What relationship are we waiting for in Jerusalem, the disciples? 
the coming upon. That's the third one. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And so when did the Holy Spirit come upon the Jews? There in Acts chapter two, when, remember, Peter and the disciples were up in a room and the Holy Spirit came in like tongues of fire and they spoke in tongues. And then Peter preached a powerful sermon by the power of the Spirit. 3,000 people were saved in that one sermon. Uh, it's an amazing story of the day of Pentecost. Uh, that's where the word Pentecostal comes from, by the way, interesting enough. But all that to say, um, so the Holy Spirit, um, Jesus says, uh, the first thing he's gonna do is be with you, then he's gonna be in you, and then he's gonna come upon you. But the, the first act that the Holy Spirit does, he says, will be that of comfort. He's the comforter. Now, fast forward in John 14, verse 26, that brings us to the second thing the Holy Spirit does. Verse 26, but the, Holy, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. That's why many times here at Athe Creek, before our Bible studies, we pray, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit to teach us and instruct us in your word? That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. When you're at home reading your Bible, you don't understand something, good news. You can say, Lord, would you send your Spirit just to teach me these things, just to prompt me to understand what this passage means? And that's how the Lord rolls. He, he uses his Holy Spirit to teach us. And not only for teaching, but also to remind you of the things you've already learned. John 14, 26 goes on. He says, he'll teach you all things and um, bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. You old timer Christians know what this is like. You've read the Bible, studied it all your life, but you don't remember stuff very good. You're like, where in the Bible does it say this? And where in the Bible? But then you're talking to somebody at work and you're trying to remember something and all of a sudden, ding, the Holy Spirit just reminds you of something that you forgot a long time ago. Uh, it's really one of the great moments in your Christian walk when you sense the Holy Spirit has just prompted you to say something that you forgot. And uh, it's a great feeling, but that's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. Number one, he's comforting. Number two, he's teaching. Number three, he's reminding. Um, and then number four, and this is where we start really getting to the crux of the matter, to testify of Jesus. Fast forward, John chapter 15, just one chapter later in verse 26, he says, but when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, Jesus said. What's the work of the Holy Spirit? To comfort, to teach, remind, but also to testify of Jesus, to point to Jesus. That's one of the works of the Holy Spirit to point to Jesus. In fact, I would argue that this is one of the main roles the Holy Spirit does before you're even a Christian. He'll point you, the unbelieving sinner, to your need for Jesus. He will testify of me. And the, the fifth one is not unrelated. Number five is he will glorify Jesus. Look at chapter 16, John 16. So this is a trilogy, John 14, 15, and 16. You can read the whole thing and learn a lot about the Holy Spirit. But in John chapter 16, verse 13 says, how be it when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you in all truth. That's the teaching thing we just talked about. For he shall not speak of himself. The Holy Spirit, did you hear what I just read there? He, the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. He will show you things to come. He shall glorify me. That's what the Bible says the Holy Spirit's all about. This is a good litmus test, by the way, because a church that doesn't have the Holy Spirit is a cold, chilly church that's not really empowered by God. You gotta have the Holy Spirit. And I'm a big fan of that. So people say, Brett, what's wrong with you? Are you a Baptist? Are you a charismaniac? Who are you? Well, we're charismatics here at Athe Creek with a safety belt. That's what, that's what I'd say about us. 
We're charismatics with a safety belt. What's the safety belt? The Bible. We don't do anything the Bible doesn't tell us we should or can or should be all about. We wanna follow what the Bible says. Um, so that's important. That's why you don't see somebody jump up and speak in tongues here on a Sunday morning. And the reason? Let all things be done decently and in order. And there's a time and a place where those kinds of manifestations of the Spirit can and will be used in the church. But um, you'll go to some churches, like I did when I was a kid, where the pastor starts preaching and somebody jumps up and starts speaking in tongues and then another guy and another guy and then pretty soon the whole church is roaring with speaking in tongues and the sermon's like over. The guy's like closing his Bible saying, I guess I'm not teaching today. Um, I've been to those churches. That, read 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and you'll realize that's not really the intent of what the Bible says about speaking in tongues and all that. Now, the reason I go into that is because... He, I'm listing for you, what does the Holy Spirit do? And some of you before today might've said, well, he makes people speak in tongues and miracles and healing and all that stuff. Yes, he does. But those are far underneath what Jesus, Jesus didn't talk about any of those things. When Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I'm gonna leave my Holy Spirit with you to comfort, to teach, remind, testify of Jesus and glorify Jesus. Um, now you say, okay, Brett, what in the world does that have to do with anything you're talking about? I'm so confused. Well, remember, we're talking about the sin that's unpardonable and the unpardonable sin is to blaspheme, to speak against the Holy Spirit. This is where this with experience, before you were even saved, before you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit was with you and he was speaking to you, testifying of Jesus, glorifying Jesus. You can tell a church if they're too much into the Holy Spirit, if all, they ever hear, all you ever hear about is the Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost. Oh, we're gonna have a Holy Ghost service and Holy Ghost experience. And it's all about the experience of the Holy Ghost. Watch out because a true church that's being filled with the Holy Spirit, they're gonna glorify Jesus. Um, did you see what it said there in John 15, 16, 13? He will not speak of himself. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, it's all about me. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says it's all about church seeing Jesus, testifying of Jesus, glorifying Jesus. That's, that's a true sign of the balanced, spirits-filled congregation and church. Now, all this to say, as it turns out, the Spirit is, is with you before you were saved, trying to testify that you need Christ. To blast, I'm gonna give you kind of the simple Brett definition, uh, try to put it as simply as I know how, and then I'll give you some of the more scholarly suggestions uh, that maybe are past a, a, a me or us. But here it is. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to speak against that with experience. When the Holy Spirit is with you when you're not saved and the Holy Spirit is saying you're a sinner and you need to repent and accept Jesus. He will testify me, Jesus, glorified Jesus. And if you resist that or speak against it, well, Brad, how do you know that? Context. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're exactly doing that. The Pharisees in this story are saying, he is not the son of David. He is... Uh, you know, doing this under the power of Satan. They said it with their mouths in front of everybody. They, they confessed with their mouth that Jesus was not the Messiah, but he is the servant of Satan. And Jesus, you might say, Jesus is saying, uh, hello, watch out, because blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a real thing. And it's the one unpardonable sin. You will not be forgiven if you reject Jesus Christ. If you say, I'm gonna reject what the Holy Spirit is doing. By the way, did you know that with experience of the Holy Spirit? The Bible says the Holy Spirit will not always strive with man. Where does it say that? During the days of Noah. Remember Noah and the ark and the world was rebellious against God. 
And God says there in Genesis 6, 3, the Lord said, my spirit will not always strive with man. Question, quiz time. Can you think of a Bible character where the spirit of God did not, ended, stopped striving with a certain individual, said, I'm done. Saul is a great example in the Old Testament. The reason we know that is because there's a point where Saul was so rebellious in his sin, and finally it says, and the Lord withdrew his mercy from King Saul. If you don't have the mercy of the Lord on your life, you're toast. Eternal toast in hell. That's a bad deal. Who else in the Bible, uh, the Spirit left? Samson's a good example. Remember Samson had the Spirit coming upon him all the time, and he'd do all these great feats of strength but he kept just doing his own thing, keep sinning, and he finally got his hair cut, you know the story. And he stood up and said, I will defeat these Philistines like I've always done before. And he stood up and he did not know that the spirit of God had departed from him. What a tragedy, that story. Um, and we could talk about Judas Iscariot. We could talk about Pharaoh of the Old Testament. Remember, it said that Pharaoh hardened his own heart nine times, says that. But after that, eventually it started saying, and so the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Nine times it says he hardened his heart, his own heart. Nine times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which one came? He hardened his heart so much that the Lord said, I'm done. Could it be that's what Romans chapter one is talking about when it talks about all the sins of today? And, and honestly, we'll talk about homosexuality in a second. But in Romans one, it's talking about people who God says, I'm gonna give them up. I'm gonna give them over to their own lusts and their own desires. I'm giving them up. I'm giving them over. That's where the spirit of the Lord it will not always strive with man, and that would be perhaps the saddest day of your life. If you get in your life to a point where you're so stubborn and you say, no, 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 I do not want the Lord, and you've successfully eluded the Holy Spirit all these years, there's a point where the Spirit will lift up himself, and then, then you are, in fact, doomed. Well, Brad, how do I know whether or not I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Um, because as long as you're alive and breathing, I think that there's still an opportunity for you to perhaps soften. Now, the Lord knows if you're past the point of no return, but I have no way of knowing that, nor do you. And that starts to bring up some interesting things about um, this whole thing of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I wanna give you three simple theories, then we'll pack it up, uh, that, that are out there about some of the nuances of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about um, theory number one. It's called the continual sinner theory. What's that? Well, the Bible sort of talks about the person who just continually sins and eventually God says, man, you're done. If you just continue sinning unrepentant, uh, then you're in big trouble. It's like that Romans one person. They sin so much, finally God says, I'm gonna give you over to your own lusts and your own desires. Um, where do we read about this? Um, uh, Galatians, why don't you keep your finger here, Matthew, fl or, uh, and flip over to Galatians chapter five. I kind of want to show you this so you can see it. This is one of those verses you should know where it is in your Bible uh, so that you can show people because it's kind of a, a, it's a scary little verse that people should know about. Galatians chapter five. Now, I know that some of you, while you're turning there, are uh, hardcore Calvinists, some of you are hardcore Arminianists, and some of you are various places in between. Um, when people try to pin me down, Brett, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminianist? And I like to say, yes. And they don't like that. If I say that, you Calvinists are like, well, Brett, he's just totally off the wall. And then, and then the Arminians are like, yeah, Brett's off the wall. Well, great, I, I must be doing something right then. What do you mean, Brett? Well, see, I, I've studied these things for a lot of my life. And I, I, can, I can argue things like once saved, always saved, eternal security. Man, I'm really good at arguing those things. 
But can you lose your salvation? Well, I would say no. But can you leave your salvation? Hmm, there gets a tricky question. What about this? This is an interesting one where our you know, uh, friends would debate over, but it's here in Galatians 5, starting in verse 18, it says, but if you be led of the Spirit, what's this all about? Being led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest or made known, which are these. And then he lists a bunch of things. Adultery, fornication, which is sexual impurity, uncleanness, I, uh, um, uh, lasciviousness, which is like party animal, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, which is like quarreling, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such the like, of which I tell you before, as I've also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, wait a minute. What does it mean to not inherit the kingdom of God? Doesn't mean you're, it means you're not going to heaven. Now, some of you might read this and think, uh-oh. Because you might have passed the test at the first part of this. Uh, adultery, check. Haven't committed adultery. <laughs> Fornication, what is that? Sexual, um, well, not. Uh, eh. What about the next one? Uh, uncleanness, or, or what about witchcraft? Hey, Brad, I don't have a broom and a wart. Uh, I'm not a witch, witch, so check, check, check. But you know, it starts getting tough when we read things like hatred. Have you ever hated somebody? Um, have you ever been angry at someone? Because that's what some of these mean. Or have you ever quarreled with someone? Um, uh, uh, strife or sedition, heresy, envyings. Have you ever envied Magnolia, Chip and Joanna, Shiplap? <laughs> Envy is a sin that's on this list. So some of you are like starting to sweat. What are you saying, Brett? Well, here's the good news. Um, when you read this, if you read it kind of in English, you're like, well, then who can go to heaven? Who gets to go to heaven? If this, if this is true, if you commit these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, then none of us can inherit the kingdom of heaven. But there's something, there's a nuance here that's kind of important, and that is this, the, 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 uh, the tense that's being used here that's kind of important. And you should know this. It's, it's a fancy you know, term you may have learned in like high school grammar or whatever. Uh, the present active participle. The what? It's when it says there, those that do such things, the idea is those who continually practice such things, they will in fact not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So the question is, what does that mean? Those who practice things like, how can I be better at adultery? If you're doing that, saying how can I be, well, there's actually people that do that. There's some people that are committing adultery and they're trying to cover up their sins and how can I get away with it and how can I be better at it? Um, and and that's, that's a dangerous place to be. That's the reason why. Well, this is that, that theory that I'm talking about. The, the, the scholars that say the continual sinner theory shows a rebellious person who's just unrepentant of their sin and they're just continually sinning, which is an indication of a hardness of heart and, and rejecting the, the, the words of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's saying, you need to repent. You need to get your sins washed and forgiven. And the more you just continually get caught up in your sin, your sins will not be forgiven. You will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's kind of the sense here. And by the way, this one is kind of a tricky one. And I wouldn't die on this battlefield on this one, but this, there are some scriptural truths that we're talking about here. Um, is, are some sins worse than other sins? You, you can say yes or no. Um, sin is sin. And if you told a little white lie, that sin will doom you to hell. If you murdered someone, that's sin, and that sin will doom you to hell. So sin is sin. 
but the repercussions of sin can be different. But also, I'm gonna say there's another thing about sin. Some sins are more addictive and some sins are more resilient to the, the Holy Spirit sort of trying to get you away from it. Let me give you an example of that. And this is where I go back to the topic of homosexuality. You see, this continual sinner theory, one of the problems is, is an indication that you're here in Galatians 5, you're in trouble is if you're continually practicing sin. That's what sets homosexuality. Some of you are like, why do you always talk about homosexuality, Pastor Brett? Well, number one, it's a big topic today. Everybody's talking about LGBTQIA+. Plus and they're putting out their flags. Have you seen, by the way, the evolution of the LGBTQI flags? It's dizzying to watch all the various flags and what they mean. I, I show this because, did you see Microsoft? That very woke uh, entity of Microsoft came up with a, a LGBTQ flag. They were so excited to unflurl it up at Microsoft because it demonstrated the 40 different um, sexual identities um, and here they unflirted it, just, just recently they unflirted it. Here, here it is, Microsoft's new pride flag. You can look this up. Um, uh, but the gay and lesbians are kind of like, uh, yeah, we don't like that. And they're calling it Pridezilla, um, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, but but this, there's certain sins where we're, we're trying to do better at the sin. We're normalizing the sin. Uh, did you see this? Uh, this is kind of a thing happening today. The American Academy of Pediatrics sent a letter to the uh, Department of Justice begging them to investigate and prosecute anyone who exposes hospitals conducting gender, gender surgeries on kids. Along with the American Medical Association, the Children's Hospital Association, American Academy of Pediatrics, they sent a joint letter to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland calling on the Justice Department to investigate and prosecute organizations, churches, um, individuals and entities exposing the fact that doctors are abusing children not old enough to make medical decisions under the guise of gender affirming care, often without parental permission. We're, we're living in a culture that is not saying, oh, that's sin and we need to run from it. We're saying we need to celebrate. We need to get behind. And anybody who's not behind this sin, they should be thrown in jail. That's, that's where we're getting. So that's the, that's the dastardly part of the homosexual thing is they're marching saying we're prideful about our sin. Gay pride. It's not that they're repenting or grieved by their sin. See, that's what makes it different. If, if you're a sinner, like let's say we have a man here at Athey who, and I use this example often, but it's probably a bad example, but let's say we have an abusive husband who's a wife beater. All of us go, Ugh, that guy, man, we need, we, need, we need to fix that right now and do whatever we gotta do. That's horrible. Yeah, and good news, most people in the world say, yeah, that's, that's bad. We shouldn't let them do that. But if you take a sin like homosexuality, the world's saying, celebrate it, do it. The more, the merrier. And now we're seeing all this um, rise in the young people because our schools and, and people are cramming LGBTQI down everybody's throats. So everybody's like, well, if you're not doing it, you're unrighteous. And so that's the problem, that's the difference. That's why in Romans 1, when talking about homosexual issues and sexual immorality, Paul says, God will give you over. There's a point where the spirit will not always strive with man. So that's the continual sinner theory, that, that evidence of you committing the blasphemy or on your way to committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is just an unrepentant heart concerning sin, the continual sinner theory. Um, that's probably the weakest one, although it is interesting to me. Number two, the final resistance theory. Um, that is resistance to the Holy Spirit's prompting, uh, the, the Holy Spirit saying you need Christ, you need to repent, you need to be saved. Um, but but somebody has been resisting their whole life. 
And the, the question becomes, is there a point where they, I've resisted and there's a point of no return? And the answer is yes, it's when you die. We know that for sure. Once, once you're dead, if you've never repented and you're still in your sins, then you've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit your whole life has tried to prompt you of your need. Oh, Brett, you're trying to convince me to accept Jesus. And I've come to these servants. My, my friends have dragged me to Athey Creek all these weeks and I still have yet to repent of my sins. <laughs> Can I tell you a story about the not so smart man? Once upon a time, there was a not so smart man. And he lived in a small town and he had done some small town criminal activity and was known around town for doing sneaky stuff. But one day he was walking around town and he saw the attorney headed in his direction and he had a piece of paper in his hand. And he said, I'm not gonna allow that attorney to give me a subpoena. And so he eluded this attorney and he ran and hid. And, and every time he'd see that attorney, he'd run and hide. And he eluded this guy for years. The attorney just kept walking toward him with this piece of paper. And he says, I will not let him give me that subpoena. After many, many years of him, he's so excited because look what I've done. He was almost prideful and arrogant, laughing, <laughs> you know. Well, eventually the guy gets cancer. 14 years later, he's in a hospital bed, laying there dying, and the attorney walks into the hospital room. <laughs> Doesn't matter now, subpoena me if you want to, he said. And the lawyer said, subpoena? I was trying to give you some documentation that proved that you inherited $45 million. What a fool. He thought he was getting away with it. And that's the case of the person who's resisting the Holy Spirit. The, the prompting that you're a sinner who needs to repent. Ah, I'm not gonna give in to that. But you're missing $45 million is nothing compared to eternal life in heaven. And there's people that are gonna resist. The final resistance theory is the person who's gonna wait and, and eventually die without having accepted Christ and, and actually taking heed, not only to receive what the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do, but speaking against it. Some people are gonna go down that way. Some people are gonna get in by the hair of their chinny chin chin. What do you mean, Brett? What about the thief on the cross? There's a guy who lived his life of sin and debauchery and he's hanging on the cross, paying a penalty for his own sins, hanging on a cross and there's Jesus. And the guy says, will you remember me? He believes in Jesus at that last moment in his dying breath. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. There's a guy who just barely snuck in. By the way, I have a hunch, this is just a hunch, that there's gonna be a ton of people in heaven that came in at the very last second. You know, battlefield guys that were out lying, bleeding out on the battlefield. And as they laid there, they may have been partying down with their buddies the night before, sleeping around, prostitutes, doing all kinds of sinful stuff. And at that moment of death said, I, I, I repent of my sins and I accept Christ. Uh, just a simple confession of faith. And we'll see that guy in heaven. Don't you wonder if there might be some shocking people that you'll go, how did you get here? <laughs> um, and it'll be that final resistance theory that even if you speak at the last moment, some of you are saying, well, Brett, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna party down and I'm gonna resist, resist until I, I'm on my deathbed. Well, that's just in case the Lord, what if he doesn't afford you a deathbed? What if you're on your way home from church today and you're singing songs of praise, but you still haven't, or you know, singing happy songs, but you're not a Christian. You never accepted, you just came to Athe Greek, you heard the message, but you're gonna resist. And then you get run over by a semi-truck, wham! Well, Brett, I'll lay on the pavement and I'll say, Lord, forgive me. What if your brain splattered all over the pavement? You won't have time to think about, Brett, that's too much information. <laughs> Could happen. It's happened before. You may not have the luxury of a, a deathbed conversion. That's, that's actually 
gambling with something that's eternal. So rather than being the stupid guy that's running around saying, aha, I've eluded the gospel message one more time, maybe you should say, why wouldn't I just finally give in? I am a sinner. I do fall short. I do need to be forgiven of my sins and I need to accept Christ. So that's this uh, you know, final resistance theory. I would say don't delay, don't run from Jesus. You're running from the answer, the solution. The final one, and then we're, and then we're truly done, is the spoken word theory. There are those scholars that say um, this, this uh, idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's, it's to speak against, but this, it's, it's your mouth that speaks, whether it's life or death, eternal life in heaven or eternal death in hell. And they, they attach more of what you say with your mouth uh, to this idea. And I think there's a truth to that. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Um, your mouth can speak forth life. How do you do that? Romans chapter 10. We talk about this every week. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes to righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. So to believe, even Satan believes. You understand that. He believes in God. But Satan doesn't believe God. There's a difference between believing in God's existence and believing what God said. The person who does not resist the Holy Spirit will say, I, I accept Jesus, who he is, and declare accepting the work of Jesus on the cross. That's why this verse in Romans 10 says, you need to confess and believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave. That's believing that he died for your sins and rose from the grave, proving he was who he claimed to be. You see, this is where the context of the story of the Pharisees rejecting Jesus, using their words to deny that he's the Messiah by Jesus saying, does the, do, do, you know, by them saying Jesus does these miracles by the power of Satan, they're coming dangerously close, if not already, crossing the line of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus brings us up here in these verses, because these Pharisees are denying Jesus and they're saying he's from Satan. So be careful when people say stuff about Jesus. Ah, oh, he's a good guy. He was a good teacher. As, as they'll say, Oprah Winfrey will say, he was a good teacher. He's a wonderful man, but he's not God in the flesh. Um, when you say that, that's why those words are so dastardly. You might think they're fairly you know, tame and you know, benign, but actually that will send you to hell. If you blaspheme and say, well, Jesus is not God who came, lived in, among us, dying on the cross for the sins of the world. That's why Jesus made it clear when he said stuff like in John 10, 30, he said, I and my father are one. He would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So the spoken word theory is if you deny Christ, you're not of Christ. Check out what 1 John 4, one through three says. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they're of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. Now we, we can talk about the spirit of Antichrist. That's a whole nother teaching. But let's just say today, that's, you don't wanna be any part of that. You don't wanna be any part of anybody who's close to the name Antichrist. That's a bad plan. So how do you avoid that? You confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh and he's of God. And when you do that, you're gonna be saved. 
So when you look at these three theories that we just kind of gone over, the blasting of the Holy Spirit, the connignal sinner theory, the final resistance theory, spoken word theory, I think all of them are important. And I think all of them come into play. And I would say the best thing is to not play around with this. It's, it's remembering what's important. And the most important thing in your life is to make sure to know that you're headed for heaven by the grace of God. So rather than playing around with, I don't know about accepting Jesus and I don't know about, you know, you can resist all you want, but don't be the foolish person who's missing out on the inheritance of heaven and eternal life. Better to repent of your sin, speak with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for you. Accept that, believe it. And the Bible says he will remember your sins no more and he'll forgive you and then you'll have the hope and the, the future of heaven. It's really clear what the Bible says. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the one unpardonable sin and it's really rejecting Jesus, the Messiah. That's what was happening here in the story. These Pharisees were committing that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus brings it up. Don't be in that camp in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Lord, how we pray that you'd soften our hearts. Help us to, Lord, be sensitive to the promptings of your spirit. For the unsaved, Lord, who's watching online or maybe here in this room today, Lord, I pray that you just continue to tap them on the shoulder spiritually that they'd sense their need to be forgiven of sin and to have a, a strong future of heaven and the hope of heaven. Lord, we know that it's a, a, a hardness of our hearts that makes us reject and be stubborn. Lord, we have other reasons that are ridiculous why we don't accept the cross but I pray that everybody would put those things aside and repent of their sin and follow you. If you would, just with an attitude of prayer and Christians, you could be praying right now. Maybe some of you are hearing this and you're saying, Brett, I've, I've, I've kind of run too long and it's time for me to repent of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done a bunch of stuff that's evil and sinful and I want the Lord to forgive me and I wanna be saved and forgiven and head for heaven. Good news. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. So the, the opposite of committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the one unpardonable sin, the opposite of that is, is to confess Christ as your personal savior. And you can do that right here, right now. And there's no reason I can think of why a person shouldn't. Well, Brett, I know the church. There's a bunch of wacko people in the church. Guess what? That has nothing to do with it. That's just an excuse. Um, and there are wacko people in the church. That's why they're here, because we're all sinners. Good news, you can be forgiven, so why would you wait? And so I'm gonna invite you to do that right now. I'm not gonna embarrass anybody. Christians, would you be in prayer right now with your heads bowed? But the rest of you, if any of you say, Brett, that's me, I wanna accept Christ. I'm done running, and I wanna accept Jesus and confess him as my savior. Would you do that right now? I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand up and, and um, look up and can we just acknowledge one another? You, me, and the Lord right now, let's just acknowledge your desire to accept Jesus. If that's you, go ahead and do that right now. Just slip up your hand, I'll acknowledge you. Awesome, see you in the back there, good. Let me just kind of look around, I don't wanna miss anybody. Take me a second. Awesome. I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession and those of you that have acknowledged this, man, the Lord is faithful, he hears your heart. And you say, Brett, this is too easy. How can I be saved so simply? It was a simple way of salvation, but it was really hard. Jesus did all the work. That's what he did on the cross. So let's accept that right now. And we'll pray this. I'm gonna ask the whole church to pray this out loud as we confess Christ together. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. 
and that he rose up from the grave and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Lord bless, I pray these people who've just confessed you and I pray that you'd wrap your loving arms around them, that they'd know their sins are forgiven, Lord. And, and we're so thankful you've made it easy for us. Um, we know we're, we're not perfect. Uh, we're still gonna make mistakes, but you died once for all sin, the Bible tells us. Lord, we're so glad that you took care of our sins. And now I pray as these people are now part of your kingdom and the spirit is now in them, may they walk in your spirit and walk in your light and do well as they serve you, Lord. Bless them. We commit this to you in Jesus' name, amen.